Live from New York City, welcome to Praxis 1313, the podcast. This is Bernard Harcourt. This year at the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought, we've been discussing the question of praxis, the question, what is to be done? It's a question that is rarely heard anymore in critical theory, but could not be more timely, given the times of crisis we find ourselves in. With global climate change, the hegemonic rise of neoliberal economic policies and growing inequality in society, with the upsurge of a fascist new right at an international dimension, nuclear proliferation and conflict, these times, more than any, call for us, critical thinkers, to answer the question, what is to be done? So this year, in Praxis 1313, we've turned to 13 critical texts that weigh in on the question of critical practice. Too much critical theory today sidesteps the issue and is content just diagnosing the crises. In this series, we're asking for more. We've been searching for practices uh, to address the crises, and so we've been reading a range of books, from Chantal Mouffe's call for a left populism, to Hart and Negri's call for assembly, uh, to the Invisible Committee's manifesto for insurrection, to Moton and Harney's writings on the undercommons, and more. In this podcast, I'll speak with the authors of the books we discussed. In this second podcast, I was fortunate enough to meet with Banu Bargu, the author of a book published by Columbia University Press in 2014, titled Starve and Immolate, The Politics of Human Weapons. In the book, Banu Bargu explores a harrowing form of praxis involving hunger strikes, including fasts to death, self-mutilation, and self-immolation. In her words, the weaponization of life. She interrogates the question that is puzzled philosophers and actors for decades. What makes it possible for a political movement, a struggle, or ideals to impress upon any one of us the duty to die for them, or to die for ourselves? Banu Bargu addresses the question in conversation with the works of Michel Foucault on biopower and discipline, and formulates a new way to think about these practices as responses to, in her words, the biopoliticization of sovereignty. We are fortunate to have a seminar dedicated to discussing Banu Bargu's book. Uh, It's called Praxis 1213, and it's online, and uh, you're welcome to look at it. Uh, Here I met up with Banu Bargu in Santa Cruz, where she teaches in the History of Consciousness Department at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her objective in the book, and it's ours as well, is, as she writes, not to excuse or justify human weapons, nor to condemn or vilify them, but to reckon with them, to engage earnestly and critically with their intervention into politics. It's that history and these praxis that I hope to explore here with Banu Bargu. Let me turn it over to Banu Bargu to tell us a little bit about her book first. I was trying to understand why, in the present conjuncture, there is a great proliferation of um, these relatively new forms of uh, political practice, of forms of struggle, that are based primarily on the direction of violence toward the self. Right. Um, including a number of, you know, more defensive forms, such as hunger strikes, um, some of which take turns, others are more indefinite, death, such as death fasts, um, but also acts of self-immolation and 
even more aggressive forms such as suicide attacks. So I saw those, I tried to situate those on a continuum of you know, self-directed and at times other-directed violence. But putting them into context, I tried to understand if they have something to do with the changing nature of power in the present and whether certain features of the power regime uh, invite, incite, create, uh, condition these forms of protest in particular. So I was trying, learning from Foucault, trying to always think power and resistance in relation with one another. Um, and uh, inquiring into these forms of resistance, um, I quickly understood that I couldn't really do that without also providing a diagnostic for the present in terms of the predominant features of the power regime. Right. And so the two, the two concepts that you crafted, based in part on, on some of Foucault's ideas, but modifying them and, mm -hmm. and transforming them, was in terms of the resistance, what you call necro-resistance, mm -hmm. uh, as, as forms of re resistance interrelated to uh, the way that power circulates, and that you described as bio-sovereignty, mm -hmm. um, which is a combination then of biopolitics uh, or biopower and, um, and a classical form of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, so those are, the, so the, those are the ideas that emerge in the book, the central ideas, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, tell me a little bit about this notion of bio-sovereignty uh, first. Okay. Yes, I mean, um, uh, the book in itself is deeply indebted to Foucault's work on uh, the prison, Discipline and Punish. And in, in fact, the title itself is kind of a retort uh, or an answer to uh, Foucault from the specific conditions of the Turkish prison. Mm -hmm. um, but um, because I wanted to look at resistance as a function, in a way, of power, um, I, it was inevitable for me to take Foucault's reflections on the changing nature of power and modernity as a starting point. And there, uh, my um, uh, understanding of Foucault was that while he did um, really revolutionize the way we understand power relations by drawing attention to disciplinary power and biopower as new modalities, when it came to the question of how they interacted with the um, uh, existing kinds of power, sovereign power in particular, um, it did not provide very satisfactory answers, or at least I wasn't um, uh, completely satisfied with the way in which um, the, the coexistence of these forms often tended to lead to uh, an expectation or an assumption of an you know, a withering away of sovereign power or becoming less important of sovereign power. Because from the experience of my fieldwork and from my own political history, my understanding was strongly shaped with sovereign powers, um, very assertive presence and um, a dynamic sort of reworking of itself. In Foucault, I found that sovereignty is often characterized mainly as a juridical power, um, as almost a, a superstructure of what's going on uh, in the depth of society. And uh, I felt that the 
emergence of sovereign, uh, sorry, emergence of disciplinary power and biopower really did have profound effects on sovereignty uh, in revitalizing sovereignty and, and creating a new power conglomeration. That's why I tried to differentiate my uh, diagnosis as bioemphasizing the amalgamation of these modalities in the concept biosovereignty. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And, um, and the necro-resistance, uh, so, so necro meaning death, resistance, forms of resistance through death, um, I take it in part you wanted to emphasize that we don't just resist biopower, which is control over our lives through life, but also through death. Is Precisely. That the, yeah. Precisely. So I wanted to, that's the basic thesis of the book. I wanted to say that the more you have um, the infusion of sovereignty with biopolitics and all the modulations in sovereignty that take place through that infusion, the more uh, you are prone to see these very bleak and disconcerting forms of resistance that mobilize death for political purposes. I mean, one can say that death has always been mobilized for political purposes, but there's something unique and novel, I think, in the way that this death is not produced by risking one's life in, in combat, for example, where there's a chance that you might die, but it's not self-inflicted death. In these contemporary struggles, the self-infliction of that violence has really achieved a prominence. And so I, I wanted to, to, to probe, to mine that contrast between what I thought were two tendencies that went hand in hand with one another, that, um, uh, you know, that, that the necropoliticization of resistance did not mean that other forms of resistance no longer exist, but to the contrary, we need to really attend to these new forms as symptomatic of, of certain things that are going on in the present. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so let me, let me turn then to the questions that are really at the forefront of my work right now, mm -hmm. which is the relationship between theory and practice. So one of the things I find so interesting about your research here is the way in which you speak about theorizing praxis. Um, so the way that you present the work and the research is to suggest that at first blush, many of these practices seem extreme. Uh, it almost seems as if the, the means are, are, are gr greater than or, or out of whack with the ends in a way that the, um, and so that, you know, we don't fully understand what's going on, what these practices mean, how to understand them, and that the work that you perform in the book is one of trying to understand these practices. And you talk about theorizing them. Um, so, um, so the way that I see the work then is one of kind of a conceptualization of particular practices uh, as a way for us to understand those practices. Um, and my question is, um, what is the what is what is that ambition to theorize praxis? Um, what do you hope to achieve by theorizing praxis? 
And that's a great question. Um, I mean, let me let me start by uh, saying a little bit about how writing this book came about for me. Okay. Um, I had a great difficulty uh, trying to um, uh, reconcile first the purported aims of these kinds of struggles and their technique, which seemed so final, so existential, so detrimental, Mm -hmm. in a way, to politics. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet they were deeply political, obviously. Um, And then looking at these um, practices from a... um, you know, politically left perspective, it was also very difficult to find engagements that, um, you know, went beyond sort of either a very facile condemnations of what they were doing or, um, you know, buyings into right-wing rhetoric about um, most of these movements. Mm-hmm. Um, um, or, or, or a very naive exaltation of, let's say, hunger striking as a nonviolent practice, mm-hmm. which I take issue with. Um, So personally, this book was my trying to work out what these practices mean politically and how we might be able to develop a new conceptual apparatus to approach them that is not, um, you know, simply folding them into a culturalist explanation or, uh, or trying to, you know, as the public sphere debates can show after... Uh, the first uh, 10 years of the 21st century, you know, these brainwashed actors, etc., you know, these characterizations. So how can we treat um, the, these agents as political agents, um, try to understand what they're doing, how they give meaning to what they're doing, and how can we draw out from that a critical vocabulary, a vocabulary that takes what they say about themselves as a starting point, but doesn't simply accept that, also questions that and, mm-hmm. and engages with that with a critical apparatus. Right, right. That right. the 20th century tradition and critical theory uh, can allow us to do. Right, yeah. So you, you emphasize you don't want to be judging, so you don't want to yes. be applying kind of a normative lens to this. Um, and you want to, and but and, but you're using a conceptual apparatus to um, describe what's going on, to to better understand what's going on, and but the process of your process of theorizing is intended, I take it. So you know, this is a question: is intended to resist other judgments about these practices in a sense in a sense it feels as if the way that you are proceeding is to try to protect these practices from the judgments of others by conceptualizing them in a particular way is that is that fair um, I mean political judgment about these practices is inevitable and I think my book does come down with a judgment at the end but I think what, what would I, that judgment be? That um, that this would not be my way of proceeding. Okay. But that in certain contexts, the resort to these kinds of actions uh, might appear inevitable for the subjects themselves in right. those conditions. Right. 
Um, but, but yes, you are right. In a way I was trying to, I found this to be a very ideological, very polemical space Mm -hmm. when I first entered Mm -hmm. into researching it. Well, it is. Yeah. I mean, mean, it's it's very fraught. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's so, I mean, people, because it's so intense. It it, it is extremely intense. Right. Yes. Yes. And, and, and believe me, I felt it physically throughout the research. Right. Um, right. So I was trying to clear and, and, a the, and space. both the opposition and the support is going to be so it's it's life and death matter absolutely right? absolutely and right. very politicized and right. of course another difficulty was that the struggle was sort of still unfolding when I started to do my ethnographic work and it, right. it's also very difficult to 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 try to um, come to a final conclusion about something that's still sort of unfolding and, and um, uh, changing meaning in a way. Right. So, um, so trying to hold a lot of different ends together because also it involved a lot of different actors with many different voices. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you feel pulled in a lot of different directions. Right, right. Um, but so do you, to, do to you feel like a social scientist in the kind of a Weberian sense of... Making distinctions between fact and values. I mean, in other words, like when you are saying that you're not judging, but you are imposing a conceptual apparatus that has effects on judgment ultimately. Right. Um, how are you? Uh, are you separating yourself out in that way? Um, you're. You're surely not encouraging the weaponization of life no. it, it, so in other words this is not a this is not a this is not the kind of theoretical relationship to praxis that is trying to formulate a praxis to figure out what is to be done right uh, or to prescribe a praxis um, but it's not totally n- neutral in a Weberian sense either and it's not just, uh, it's not a Durkheimian analysis no. of suicide. No, right? no, no. Right. I mean, I think that kind of neutrality is impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But what I um, aim to do, because precisely because of the very polemical nature of the field that I found myself operating in, to, to suspend judgment enough um, so that I could hear the voices of the people engaged in these practices themselves Mm -hmm. in order to only then come to a judgment about what this is all about. Um, So it was to create this this, uh, space in which theory can can function um, to exercise a a more informed judgment, perhaps a more critical judgment and... um, uh, yeah, so so that was the gesture of trying to not begin by having already uh, a position. Right. And uh, really, I think anyone who does uh, field work, who does ethnography, will attest to the fact that oftentimes, even if you do go to the field with a lot of different judgments and ideas, what you experience there really fundamentally changes you and, mm. and leads you to question a lot of your 
pre-made assumptions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the methodology of this book is really important in that respect, mm -hmm. to, in the way it speaks to um, the research of practice. Yeah, right. um, yeah. Would you be willing to make any claims or statements such as of this type? Okay. Uh -huh. um, the use of death fasts by Turkish prisoners was an effective means of challenging or was not an effective means of challenging. You see, because those kind of statements would then formulate a judgment about the praxis in a different way. In other words, it would it would then it would then verge on prescription mm -hmm. in some in some way. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so would you be willing to would you be willing to tranche the question mm -hmm. of whether or not this is, for instance, an effective way of resisting uh, a biosovereignty, kind of these extreme forms of um, solitary confinement in supermax prisons, etc. Right. Um, I would say that in certain occasions, uh, the resort to the death fast has had transformative effects. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned in this research, and in other cases it hasn't, mm -hmm. um, but what I've learned through this study is primarily, if, if there's one thing I really took away for myself, it was that trying to um, analyze these kinds of protests on the basis of a cost-benefit, like what do they achieve? You know, do the means... Uh, measure up to the ends, that, that kind of logic, which was kind of logic that I was pursuing in the beginning, um, uh, at least to map out certain contradictions, um, it, it really doesn't work. There is a kind of expressive effectivity of these struggles that um, I think are not really uh, approachable through that logic, which precisely, as you said, would mean prescription or or not mm -hmm. um, I mean first of all I, I should also have said that I don't feel that it's my place to prescribe right. a certain form of struggle to people who are in that situation right. I think they understand they're, they're, they are um, savvy political actors they are knowledgeable they are um, thoughtful and you know experienced, and they understand and evaluate their circumstances and decide, you know, having weighed the potential outcomes and the effects, um, what to do, mm -hmm. what strategy to follow. Mm -hmm. But I think it is. It, I saw it as part of my intellectual responsibility to try to reflect their considerations, why they chose this path, mm -hmm. despite the fact that it involved a lot of difficulties and very high costs, uh, both personally and in terms of um, uh, you know, their, their relationship to uh, the broader public, let's say, why they did what they did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So ultimately, um, I think... Uh, the, the weakening of the relationship between those who resort to these kinds of practices and public support says more than, you know, what my judgment on these practices could say. Right, 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 right. 
So, um, but this comes at the end of the movement. So, sorry to, to finish ahead, that. Ahead, but it comes at the at the um, you know uh, this is a retrospective view of you know how certain um, uh, movements have kind of unfolded right. and and and. Although these fasts are still going on. Now. Um, I mean, right now, right. yes, yes, but it's right. a completely different uh, wave uh, um, right. that has little to do um, with the Original. 2000, 2007 that my right. focus uh, right. was on. Right. But of course, the um, uh, some of the causes, some of the grievances uh, are still the same, very much the same. Uh, solitary isolation uh, in prisons, in super maximum security prisons. Um, and, um, and especially because the current struggle is being carried out by uh, Kurdish political actors mainly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is about uh, a lot of uh, claims to recognition that are representative of the broader movement and not just based right. on the prison. Right. Okay, so then let's close with, uh, with this question. Uh, question or, or framing maybe mm-hmm. and then you can or I'll propose a framing and then you can react and okay. we can um, so if we had to think of the relationship between theory and praxis here it would be something about the fact that you are analyzing kind of independent autonomous practices um, that are not themselves necessarily kind of in by your theoretical construct, um, but that your theoretical work of trying to understand these practices does affect the space within which those practices are understood and discussed and debated. So ultimately, there will be some effect on the practices because they are embedded in a whole discourse that is either attacking or supporting, but there's a whole, there's, I mean, it's impossible not to situate those death fasts within that larger Mm -hmm. space and, and your work will affect that larger context within which the praxis occurs without, though, um, uh, prescribing the praxis or trying to transform the praxis or trying to weigh in really on the question of whether these are appropriate forms of political resistance or not. I mean, is that more or less, is that a fair framing? Is there something in there that you would want to disagree with or or reformulate somehow? I think it's a fair, it's a very fair statement. Um, I think that, of course, the impact of the way I frame this, which, as you say, is very different ultimately from um, the... Uh, ways in which a lot of the actors who were participating in these struggles would understand what they were doing. It's informed by them, but they don't necessarily, uh, you know, make a reference to Foucault or, um, you know, use the concepts that I've used in order to diagnose the present. Um, But um, there is, of course, um, an understanding of... um, 
uh, of the present that I try to bring forward that is informed by their diagnoses. Um, and another way in which I try to do this is, um, and this speaks back actually to an earlier question about you know fact and value that you were mm-hmm. raising. You know, I try to craft the architecture of the book um, to problematize um, you know the, the the truth of any one narrative that I found in the field. So I I try to tell the same story twice in the book. One from the perspective of the state Mm -hmm. and the authorities that represent um, uh, the state's policies, the prison policies, uh, its um, security operations, etc. And then the second half of the book, I try to retell that story from the perspective of prisoners. Mm And my idea was that in trying to put these together, uh, we're not we're not getting at the bottom of it so much as looking at the disjuncture between these narratives to have a greater sense of what's happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. the the same conditions are experienced in a very different way by actors according to their positions in the structural hierarchies of power. Right. So ultimately, I mean, the way I frame this, it has, if it does, a very mediated uh, impact on, um, you know, actors who participate in these kinds of struggles. If, if, it, if it provides a solid sense of what happened uh, in the Turkish case, of course, I would, I would feel very uh, satisfied as a scholar to have contributed that. But in terms of... Um, you know, giving uh, an assessment of a balance sheet of, you know, these kinds of struggles um, to core, I don't think it, it uh, would do that. It's very contextualized. I, I, I try to be careful not to uh, come to a big judgment about these kinds of protests in general um, uh, in terms of their political effectivity because I think it's really contextually bound in, in a lot of ways. Um, so um, perhaps it might have a little effect in moving the discourse to a to a, a more interesting place where we can actually begin to discuss uh, these kinds of practices on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can achieve that, I, I consider uh, the, the endeavor to be a big success on a personal note. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And it is. So. Well, <laughs> thank you. That's very generous. All right. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank, thank you, you so much. Um, we're going to have to cut it short because yes. we're going to have to go to the yes. history of consciousness. So. Yes. All right. Thank you so much for talking about the book. Thank you very and, much. Um, we'll uh, obviously continue. Yes, wonderful. Right. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. This is Bernard Harcourt. Thanks for joining us for Praxis 1313, the podcast. To watch the seminars and read our essays and hear other podcasts, please join us on the web at blogs.law.columbia.edu front slash praxis1313 or follow us on Twitter at Columbia CCCT or on the web and on Facebook at the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought. Thanks again. It's been a real pleasure.